0: teacher wrote this, uh, and I quote her in my book. She said, when girls were falling, when girls were behind, which was not that long ago, (laughs) um, you know, Title IX was for girls. And uh, 1994, the Gender Equity Act put millions of dollars into equity workshops and gender, uh, you know, girl-friendly curriculum and so on. Um, There's been nothing like that for boys. And so this teacher said, you know reflecting what she's getting you know in the, in the world of teachers she said when girls were befa- were behind boys we said well it's the system it's discrimination against girls now that boys are falling behind we say it's their fault it's for because being,
1: yeah, yes
0: so being too masculine that's uh. what she said you know well it's boys fault cuz you know they because of their masculinity, they won't sit still. They won't pay attention. You know, they're, hmm. they're, too, they're too aggressive, blah, blah, blah. You know, so she said, we're blaming boys for their masculinity.
1: Welcome to Grounded. I'm Steve Hartland, pastor of Cornerstone Community Church in Joppa, Maryland, and I have a guest on Grounded today. Her name is Professor Nancy Piercy. Let me tell you a little bit about her. She is scholar in residence at Houston Baptist University. Houston. I've never been to Houston. Wonder how many of you have been to Houston. I'd love to go to Houston. I think. Anyway, she's author of at least nine books. It says nine on Wikipedia, so it must be true, right? And uh, I first ran into her. I didn't bring the date with me. I didn't bring the book with me. But she wrote a book titled Total. Truth. It's a book on Christian apologetics, defending the faith, a really excellent book. I highly recommend it to you. I've recommended it to other people. But that was my first brush with Professor Piercy. And uh, since then, there have been other books that came out. But we're talking with her today about her most recent book. And here it is. I'm going to show it to you. And the title is The Toxic War on Masculinity. Being a guy that interested me, how Christianity reconciles the sexes. So um, we're here to talk about that. Nancy, say hello to everybody, would you?
0: Yes, I will. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it.
1: It's a real pleasure. Cool that we can do this. I'm in Maryland. You're in Texas, and we're talking live. Modern technology: a blessing and a curse. So uh, let's get a little bio first, just so people can get to know a bit about you. So. What do you want to tell us about your background? Where were you born and raised, and stuff like that?
0: Well, when I'm asked about my background, I usually like to just tell the story of how I became a Christian, because it's such an important part of my life. So uh, I was raised in a Lutheran home. I don't know if you know this, but all Scandinavians are Lutheran. Uh, like,
1: yes. Oh, I was like yes.
0: So my father's from uh, my father was Swedish. My mom's Norwegian. So. Um, but, but part of the problem with ethnic uh, homes is that often they rely on the ethnicity to hold their kids instead of really having a you know a strong personal commitment to the faith. At any rate, when I was in high school, I just started asking my parents questions. You know, how do we know it's true? That's all I was really asking. How do we know Christianity is true? I'm, mm-hmm. I'm a public high school. All my textbooks are secular. All my teachers are secular. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to know, how do we know that Christianity is the truth? And unfortunately, none of the adults in my life could answer that question. Mm. I asked a uh, college professor, point blank, why are you a Christian? He said, works for me.
1: Oh, man.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And I had a chance to talk to a seminary dean, and I thought, well, I get something more substantial from him. But all he said was, don't worry, we all have doubts sometimes. As they all was, need
1: to read your book, Total Truth. <laughs> yeah,
0: that, that's why I wrote Total Truth, right? <laughs> yes. <And> then, <laughs> because I wanted to uh, address young people who had the questions that I had and who didn't get answers. Uh, and so I, I did. I totally left my religious upbringing uh, very intentionally, walked away from my faith at uh, about midway through high school. Hmm. And and I started going. I started going to the library and pulling books off the philosophy shelf because I thought, if I can't get any, you know, adults to talk to me about these issues, maybe that's what philosophy is about. You know, that's their job, right? Uh-huh. To answer questions like: Is there truth? How can we know it? Is there meaning to life? Is there a foundation for ethics, or is it just true for me, true for you? And I realized pretty quickly that if it, if there was no God, then the answer was no, <laughs> there is no meaning to life. There is no foundation for ethics. Um, and I realized there's not even a foundation for knowledge because mm. here's how I thought of it. If all I have is my puny brain and the vast scope of time and space, what makes me think I could have some sort of transcendent, absolute, objective truth? Ridiculous. That's how it struck me as a 16-year-old ridiculous. So by the time I graduated from high school, I'd become a complete relativist and skeptic hmm. and, and even determinist because in my science classes, I was taught that we were just complex biochemical machines anyway, with no free will. So I was very ripe for a few years later, um, I ended up at Labrie, which is the ministry of Francis Schaeffer. Hmm. It's in Switzerland. Uh, I had lived in Europe as a child. And so I had gone back. I, I loved it. And so that's how I kind of stumbled across LaBrie. And that's the first time I'd ever heard any Christians talk about apologetics, you know, give good reasons and arguments for faith and, and could engage the secular isms that I had absorbed by that time. No other Christian had been able to do that. So I was, I was blown away. Hmm. I, I was incredibly impressed. And of course, um, Francis Schaefer is also known for promoting the arts among Christians. And I was in... Germany, studying at the Heidelberg Conservatory. I, I play the violin. My, so,
1: I didn't know that about you.
0: <laughs> so, so that was important. And then uh, this was 1971. And so everyone there was hippies. <laughs> so, so yep. and, and, and even that was impressive because nobody at that time had, no Christians had yet figured out how to reach across that cultural oh. divide, you know, to these disaffected young people. And so I thought, who are these Christians? Yeah. You know, they can even talk to hippies <laughs> hmm. at any rate so the that's the uh, the big sort of the big story of how I became a Christian. It was through discovering apologetics and that's why I write and teach on apologetics now as I said before I just really have a heart for young people who are having questions and so all, all of my books are directed in some way towards answering their questions.
1: love it absolutely love it i'd like a little more bio if i may please just personal stuff like married kids do you have a dog or canary or what
0: <laughs> yeah so i'm married i have two kids and um fortunately one of them was able to attend hbu where i teach now he had just reached college age so we homeschooled both of our kids um at, le- at least for part of the time our oldest son was homeschooled at a time when there weren't there were no high school homeschools it was Early on, so he did end up going to public high school. But, but the fun about having my second son attend my university is, I felt like I was still homeschooling. Because <laughs> I made him take all my courses.
1: <laughs> he didn't mind being under mom's shadow, so to speak, and mom's watching me.
0: <laughs> this this son, no, no, no. This, you know, every child is different, of course. But he's a very sweet-natured uh, person who I think was happy to have a little extra time. Um, nice. So, so nice. yeah, that's that's. I um. Any anything? Well, you. you I play the that's violin. You already got that part. So any. I asked about else? a dog
1: or a canary, but I was only kidding. But you can tell us if you have one.
0: Oh, our dog recently died. So actually, we're in we're in grief right I'm now. I'm so still. sorry. Yeah. Yeah. yeah
1: well, I understand grief. that grief. Our last, I think we had yes. five dogs or something. Our last oh, one died wow. 16 years ago. His name was Boaz. He was a black Labrador Retriever. And we loved him so much for that and other reasons. We have not seen fit to get another dog since then.
0: That's it, isn't it? Yeah. You, you almost feel disloyal, isn't it, if yes. you get another dog? Yes, he's our dog, final dog. Boaz is a cool name for a dog, by the way. It
1: was. It was even a conversation starter.
0: I bet. Or
1: people would say, they'd meet us, hey, what's your dog's name, Boaz? Oh, are you Christians? That was kind of fun. (laughs) They knew (laughs) about Boaz.
0: Christian or Jewish, right?
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Very good. Well, let's jump into things that are related to your book. So I'd like to start here, if you don't mind. And that is, you know that uh, we're hearing and hearing and hearing now that uh, evangelical Christian men are awful. They're just oppressive patriarchal, prone to abuse their wives and everybody else. Um, but in your book, I noticed you make the claim, the kind of surprising claim, that actually if you test this, if you look at the data, if you look at the studies, um, those men, men, evangelical men who actually attend church, I think it is, uh, have the lowest levels of abuse and divorce. You wanna talk about that, is that true?
0: Yes, yes I, I put that at the front of the book because I wanted to get the good news out first. And it, it was very easy to find uh, people attacking Christian men for being, like you said, abusive, tyrannical, patriarchs, <laughs> overbearing, controlling. Mm-hmm. And and I'll give you just one, um, here's one quote. It was from the co-founder of the Church Two movement, which followed the Me Too movement. Huh. And she said, the theology of male headship feeds the rape culture.
1: Oh yeah, we- the rape culture. Yeah.
0: That, we, that we see permeating American Christianity today.
1: Permeating, wow. Yeah,
0: so that, that's, pretty, that's pretty strong. And what happened is the uh, social scientists were reading these accusations and saying, where's your evidence? You know, you're making these charges, but where's your data? And so they went out and did the studies. So psychologists, sociologists, um, I cite some dozen or so studies and what they found out was the exact opposite of the media narrative that evangelical men actually test out as, like you said, the most loving husbands, the most engaged fathers. And by mm. the way, they are interviewing the wives. So so they're actually saying that the wives report.
1: That's what wives the wives say. Mm. Mm-hmm.
0: Which is important, right? Um, and they do interview the wives separately. because So she the- can really
1: say what she believes.
0: And, I mean, people do often say, I, it, this surprised me how many people push back by saying, well, of course, her wife said they were happy, their husband's sitting right there. <laughs> <laughs> but, but actually, that's not the case. Most mm. of these um, studies drew on these large public databases. The largest one is called the General Social Survey, and it's done by the University of Chicago. Mm. And it's something that people pull from who are you know, journalists, policymakers, politicians, social scientists, and so on. So yeah, the women are actually interviewed separately. And so these wives report being the happiest with their husband's expression of love and affection. Evangelical fathers spend more time with their kids than any other group, both in terms of shared activities like sports and and a church youth group, but also in terms of discipline, like setting limits on screen time or enforcing bedtime. Evangelical couples do, as you said, uh, divorce at a lower rate than any other group, 35% lower than secular men. And also the biggest surprise was that their rate of domestic abuse and violence is the lowest of any group in America.
1: Now, let me jump in there a second, especially on the divorce front. Aren't we hearing though that all evangelicals are divorcing just at the same rate as everybody else?
0: Yeah, yeah. And of course, I get that all the time. So then I have to explain. The, the, the researchers went back to the data, and they did separate out evangelical men who are really authentically committed, yes. go to church, and so on, from nominal Christian men. Yes. And previous uh, studies had not done that. So nominal, by the way, my students don't even know what the word nominal means. So I have to explain. Huh. N-O-M is Latin for name. So it means in name only. So these are men who on a survey like this might check the Baptist box, for example, Mm -hmm. but they don't actually go to church. It's their family background. It's their cultural background. And these men test out shockingly different. So they do test out with all the toxic stereotypes. Their wives report the lowest level of happiness in their marriage. They are the least engaged with their kids. They have the highest rate of divorce, 20% Mm. higher than secular men. Mm. And the real shocker is they have the highest rate of domestic abuse and violence, higher even than secular men. And so this is why the numbers are so often misleading. If you have, you know, if you just uh, have a study covering evangelicals, you'll get men who are better than secular men and men who are worse than secular men. So, of course, the numbers are going to be misleading. And and by the way, and this is not out there in the public yet, uh, I had to go digging in the academic literature to find this, and which is one reason I put it right at the front of the book, because people need to find this out. Christians need to know, you know, the Christian men are actually doing very well. Yes. Because uh, we, t- we tend, um, I mean, Christian men are feeling the same sense of attack uh, on masculinity. Uh, when I told my class at um, Houston Baptist University that I was writing a book on masculinity, one of my male students shot back, what masculinity? It's been beaten out of us.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: So, oh, yeah, Christian men need to hear Even this. Even a college-age
1: young man is feeling that.
0: Yes, and, and one of my graduate students uh, was the, is the leader of a women's ministry at a large Baptist church here in Houston. And here was, here was her story. She said, you know, because we meet with the leadership and we decide how to handle Mother's Day and Father's Day. Hmm. On Mother's Day, we hand out roses and tell the mothers so they're wonderful. On Father's Day, we scold the men and tell them to do better. <laughs> uh, okay. I think I'm
1: glad I'm not going to that church on Father's Day.
0: <laughs> but I, get, oh, I hear from a lot of people, oh, yep, that pretty much describes our church. So, so I, very, I was very careful not to take a scolding tone mm-hmm. in this book because mm-hmm. I feel like it's time to start you know, building up Christian men and letting them know that they are doing a very good job.
1: Excellent. So one important, very important part of your book, a lot of what comes later in the book is going to point back to this or grow out of this. And that is you talk about men being torn between or men being offered or men being raised up in two competing scripts for masculinity. You could be masculine in this way, you could be masculine in that way. Would you talk about those? Because I thought they were really foundational to a lot that's in the book and really full of insight.
0: Yeah, I love this. It was a uh, sociological study and I'll give you some background to it which is not in the book. Um, this has proved to be the most controversial book I've ever written,
1: ha, which surprised me. Oh, yeah?
0: Well, my earlier book, Love Thy Body, dealt with abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism, which is, of course, an mm-hmm. issue that's exploding right now. Uh, so I did not think masculinity would be more controversial. But um, I, I taught the manuscript in several classes, and I, I laid I tend to lead a lot of reading groups on my books to get feedback, you know, r- rub off the rough edges. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they would tell their family and friends about the book. And invariably, the first question would be, whose side is she on?
1: Whose yeah. side is she on? Huh.
0: With, with that tone, right? Who's huh. kind of a hostile tone. Uh-huh. Huh? Whose side is she on? Um, and by the way, the second question was always, and why is a woman writing a book on masculinity? Anyway. Oh,
1: no. Yeah.
0: Um, and And so – Men tended to assume I was going to be a male bashing feminist and uh, more uh, progressive people tended to assume I was going to be some kind of angry, defensive reactionary. Hmm. Uh, And so I actually put this study at the front of the book as well uh, to sort of overcome that initial hostility or suspicion. And the study was done by a sociologist who gets invited to speak all around the world. And so he came up with this really interesting Uh, experiment where he would ask young men two questions. First, he would ask them, what does it mean to be a good man? If you're at a funeral and in the eulogy, somebody says he was a good man, what does that mean? Hmm. And all around the globe, young men had no trouble answering that. They would say, honor, integrity, duty, sacrifice, do the right thing, look out for the little guy, be a provider, be a protector, be responsible. And the sociologists would ask, would you learn that? And they'd say, well, it's just in the air we breathe. And or if they were in a Western country, they would often say it's part of our Judeo-Christian heritage. Mm. And then he would follow up with a second question. He, he, he said, what if I say to you, man up, be a real man? And the young man would say, oh, no, no, that's completely different. <laughs> that yeah. means be, be tough, be strong, never show weakness, win at all costs. Um, suck it up play through pain uh what else Uh, be competitive get rich get laid i'm using their (laughs) language
1: Uh
0: in other words um it appears that all around the world even in countries that have, have no christian background young men do know what it means to be the good man it seems to be an inherent innate knowledge i would say they're made in god's image and they do inherently know what it means to be a good man but they also then feel this cultural pressure to be the real man, quote unquote, which are the traits that are somewhat more toxic. And certainly if disconnected from a moral ideal, they can slide into becoming uh, entitlement and oppressiveness, uh, control, whatnot. And so, I, I, that way, it, what it means is, you know, you don't have to ask whose side is she on? You know, we can encourage and support men in their innate knowledge of what it means to be the good man. By the way, that's a better strategy than accusing men of being toxic. Hmm.
1: Yeah.
0: Why not? Why not be positive? Why not tap into their inherent knowledge of what it means to be the good man? Um, and at, while, while at the same time, maybe being being able to think critically about the more secular um, definitions of, of masculinity that are out there. You know, the Andrew Tate masculinity that unfortunately has become very popular with young men today. You know, how, how can we, uh, you know, support one while being critical of mm-hmm. the other
1: one? Yeah, pausing on Tate. I think it's unfortunate, but not surprising, that a lot of big-time podcasters are rushing to have Andrew Tate on because they're going to get a lot more followers from that. They're going to get a lot more audience from that. So I've listened to a good bit of Tate and the various people who have had him on. and Very interesting character, but yeah, wow, what what a distortion of what masculinity and especially godly masculinity ought to be, but I'm afraid he's become a role model for a whole lot of young men, hasn't he?
0: Yes, yes. I just heard from a, a f- former graduate student of mine who now teaches at a Christian classical school. She, all our all our boys, all our boys, are fans of Andrew Tate. Really? Yeah. Wow. At a Christian classical school.
1: Yeah. Take away their and so- phones and iPads. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah or um, the positive is <laughs> construct and communicate a biblical view of masculinity there you go that, that is is strong you know um, uh, well the good men honor integrity sacrifice yeah. you know and, in fact let me give you another uh, study because one of the strengths uh, one of the things I find that's unique about my book is that I, I do a lot of studies from secular. Thinkers, you know, it's good. most writers on um, writing books on masculinity, uh, sort of devotional or Christian living books. Um, and, and mine is very fact based. So here's another uh, study. This was done by an anthropologist. And again, it was global. It was the first ever cross cultural study of concepts of masculinity. Again, not a, not a Christian. And what he found is that no matter how they defined masculinity, because it does differ from culture to culture, all cultures have the expectation that the good man will perform what he calls the three P's, provide, protect, and procreate. Hmm. In other words, you know, be, become a father, build Ugh. into the next generation.
1: That's everywhere, huh?
0: And I thought, yes, it's global. And I thought, there it is again. You know, once again, we're, we're seeing that men have an inherent innate knowledge that, that their unique masculine strengths because they are bigger, stronger, faster than women, but their unique masculine strengths are not given them just to get whatever they want, mm. but are given them to, to provide uh, yeah. provide for, protect, and take care of the for people the that they of. love. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I, I would call this maybe, uh, to give another theological term, it's general revelation. Mm. General re- revelation is what we know just from, from looking around at creation, um, as opposed to spe- special revelation is, is the Bible. But you know, Paul says we can look in Romans one. He says, you know, we, we should be able to look at creation and learn and learn some things about God and what He expects of us just from general revelation. And I think this these studies sort of underscore that that men everywhere understand what masculinity is meant to be. And Romans two, too, exact right. We all have a conscience, uh, not yeah. just Christians. We all have a conscience. So I, I think it underscores that Paul was absolutely right.
1: Yes, Amen. So. Um, you also note in the book that, and I think we all kind of know this because we live in this world, men are falling behind in education. We were hearing that a lot, seeing it a lot. It seems to be the truth, uh, falling behind in employment, falling behind in health and even in life expectancy. I think men have long lived shorter lives than women. That wasn't a good sentence. Long lived shorter anyway. Um, but it's, it's becoming worse. So, these seem to be some of the real problems men are facing, falling behind in education, employment, health, life expectancy. But it doesn't seem like there's any project to make that better. Why are people ignoring that now?
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, I do go through a lot of the statistics in the book um, on how well, boys are falling behind from kindergarten. <laughs> you know this is so this is so sad. you know they they don't have as good fine motor control, and so they can't they can't you yeah. know operate as scissors as well. <laughs> From the that
1: time
0: they're in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, And all the way through. And, and you know, mo- I don't think most people realize that at the college level, there are now more women than men yes. going to college. Uh, the average college now is 60% female and 40% male. In fact, when I started at Houston Baptist University, we were 70-30, which is not so wow. unusual for smaller colleges.
1: 70 uh, men or 70 women?
0: 70 women.
1: You were. Huh.
0: Mm-hmm. have you attracted so I, I, more
1: men since then
0: yes yes so here's what we did we started a football team
1: <laughs> uh-huh
0: even be well even before we the team started when we just announced it the number of male students started to go up that's crazy and we started an engineering department
1: oh yeah there you go
0: <laughs> so good news and- these were these were to bring um, to bring in more men, and and we are, you know, it's slowly we are starting to see a better balance. But schools like Harvard are actually instituting affirmative action to attract more male students because they don't oh, want that's to go. Isn't that? Yeah. I mean, they're, they're being quiet about it. <laughs> uh-huh. but there's been a couple of articles on it, so um, yeah, they don't want to go beyond sixty forty, you know. And you know why? <laughs> I recently did read an article on it, and it said. It's not that these ivy league schools care about men it's that they know women will stop coming if (laughs) there
1: aren't guys
0: there aren't any guys there
1: (laughs) (laughs) oh that's pretty good
0: so and in graduate school there's more women than than men in graduate school there are more women than men even in professional schools like law and medicine Hmm. and then after school like you just mentioned uh, men are more likely to commit suicide, be drug addicted, to have to be homeless, to be in mental hospital, to be in prison. 95% yeah. of prison inmates are male. And and actually, the life expectancy thing, you said, uh, that's been for a long time. Actually, it has not been for a long time. Women used to die in childbirth.
1: Oh, that's true. If you factor that in, you're right. <laughs> you
0: go that far back. Right. Yes. You go that far back. Um,
1: yeah. I uh, read that uh, back in like Victorian England, if you were to, an uppity family, um before giving birth to a child, a woman would like set her affairs in order, make sure, you know, whatever she had to take care, because she just knew I might not make it through this.
0: That's true, so, I write about that in my book, actually, hmm. that uh, yes, yes, you, you know, make sure you have a will. Before, yes, you, have, will. before you go into, into the childbirth, you have a will. In fact, some women would actually have their child on their shroud, <laughs> the, the shroud that they would be buried in they would use that as as the sheet. Oh, that they lay on.
1: Take the so, baby up and wrap me up, and yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah to make it, yeah, make it a little easier. Yeah, so so dying in childbirth uh, was, was a major factor, of course, in mm. women dying. Many men had two or three wives, not because they divorced, yeah. but because wives died. Yeah. Uh, what was it? Uh, the statistic, like, was was uh, enormously high in the colonial era here in America. It was something like one out of five women died in childbirth. So. Um, all that, all that to say. Thank um, God
1: for modern medicine. Yes,
0: yeah. yes. Um, in in recent years, male life expectancy has gone down, oh, while women stayed the same. So it's not a general trend.
1: Now, in, now, why, Nancy? Uh,
0: well, uh, th- let me let me give you a quote first. Uh, there's a magazine called The New Scientist that said the major demographic factor in early death now is being male. Well, two reasons. Hmm. Um, a lot of them are deaths of despair. In other words, drug, addict, mm. drug addiction. Uh, the opioid crisis, you know, really hit men. And and why did it hit men? Uh, because uh, all of our, so many of our working class jobs were outsourced, right? Right. Factories were, were shutting down. Men men were out of work. Unemployment does a real number on men. Mm. <laughs> it, it's very, very hard for men who, who, like we just said, they intrinsically know that they're meant to provide and protect. Yep. Well, that's taken away from them. Of course, they're going to be depressed. And people, uh, doctors were handing out opioids like candy. Um, and, you know, there is something there, they bear some responsibility as well. And then I've had people say, well, how do they afford it? Medicare. <laughs> mm. We're paying for it. We're paying for yes. these men to kill themselves and taxpayer yes. money. That was a real shock. When or their mother's that. paying
1: for it while they live in her basement and play video games all day, yeah. every day.
0: Exactly. So, so, um, Unemployment, speaking of unemployment, uh, many of us haven't realized how bad it is because it doesn't show up in the unemployment numbers when they stop looking for work. So researchers had to dig a little deeper. And what they're now telling us is that male unemployment is at depression era levels. Hmm. That was a shock. Uh, You know, we remember the depression, you know, from our history books, it's at depression era levels. And so I, I think that's why there's so much uh, homelessness, despair, mm. drug addiction,
1: but it's not and,
0: even, and crime even. It, yeah. It's
1: not is it It's not that there's that there aren't jobs out there because everywhere I go out there, they're hiring and can't find anybody to hire. So are these men who just don't want to work because they're depressed, disillusioned, no vision?
0: Yeah, um, I think that's part of it. And sometimes they think the jobs are below are beneath below them. them yeah. <laughs> um, there are certainly a number of men who won't take those really low level entry level jobs, hmm. and, and that's sad because I I think that they, in my in my view, you should be willing to take whatever job yes. is out there. That your commitment, to, especially if you have a family, your commitment to supporting your family should be greater than your con- concern over. Shame over taking a job that you think is, be, you know, beneath you. Um, but yeah, it's the uh, you know. I, I also think there's something to be said for having been attacked as as toxic for a long time. Um, there there was a study done uh, just a couple of years ago where half of American men, half, just under half, under half of American men said. Uh, They agreed with the statement, these days, society seems to punish men just for acting like men. Hmm. And there was a study uh, shortly after that. That one's in the book. There was a more recent one, so it's not in the book, but it was in Britain. And it was 55% of men. So even more than half of men agreed with this. Um, And I quote a, a psychotherapist who writes regularly for the Wall Street Journal. And she said, the young men coming into my practice are increasingly demoralized, defeated, mm. um, because they feel like they're growing up in a culture that's hostile to masculinity. So I think that that is undercutting men's motivation as well. Richard Reeves at the Brookings Institution just wrote a book called Of, of Boys and Men, and he highlighted a uh, an education program in michigan where donors said we will pay for students i think if they had a certain grade level to go to k- college we will pay for them who signed up girls girls who, did, hmm. who didn't sign up boys hmm. <laughs> and richard reese uh, you know as a researcher said now what's going on here <laughs> there's something deeper happening because when they were given an opportunity they would not take it there's something happening to their underlying motivation and morale and confidence and we've got to dig deeper than just giving them more opportunities and, and and I'll, I'll give you one more quote too on this because I, I think it's relevant um a teacher wrote this uh and i quote her in my book she said when girls were falling when girls were behind which was not that long ago <laughs> um you know title line was for girls and uh, 1994, the Gender Equity Act poured millions of dollars into equity workshops and gender, uh, you know, girl-friendly curriculum and so on. Um, there's been nothing like that for boys. And so this teacher said, you know, reflecting what she's getting, you know, in the, in the world of teachers, she said, when girls were, befa- were behind boys, we said, well, it's the system, it's discrimination against girls. Now that boys are falling behind, we say it's their fault. It's for because being, yeah, yes. So being too masculine, that's uh. what she said. You know, well, it's boys' fault because you know they, because of their masculinity, they won't sit still, they won't pay attention. You know, they're, hmm. they're too, they're too aggressive. Blah blah blah. You know, so she said we're blaming boys for their masculinity. You know, for girls we said, oh, we need to help them. For boys, nobody's saying we need to help them. In fact, when they did try to start programs. Uh, Christina Hoff-Sommers was a f- person who, she's a philosopher, and she wrote the first book on the subject several years ago. You probably read it. It's called The War Against Boys.
1: No, I did and, not read that.
0: You'll like it. It was the first book on the, on the subject. There's been several more, you know, the, the trouble with boys, um, why boys fail. There's, I, I list several of them in my book. Um, but she said, we tried to start programs for boys and they were always opposed there was always some sense that this is a zero sum game. And if we help boys, you know, we're going to start leaving girls behind. And so they, re- she reported a lot of attempts to help boys, to, f- to have programs that were focused on boys and they were always shut down. Hmm. So, mm-hmm, well, by feminists, yes. <laughs> mostly. I mean, her, 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 her book was titled, uh, The War Against Boys, How Feminism... Ah, she had feminism in the subtitle she reissued the book and she got rid of the word feminism (laughs) (laughs) okay (laughs) getting out of
1: trouble for that one so i have a question for you this i have a question for you and that is um so college is increasingly unbelievably expensive i know you're an academic and i'm not trying to say you all are bad but it's gotten really expensive um unbelievably expensive like we my wife and i have four sons they all went to school Um, and we we helped pay for that. And if I had to do that today, wow, like how would you put four boys through college today? And I know lots of guys who are electricians, plumbers, whatever I know them from the gym. We talk and some of them are making really good money being electricians. So if I was raising boys today, I might be more inclined to send them into a trade rather than go to university get corrupted get a degree get a job and so on is that some of what's happening why there are fewer guys going to the university now or does that not really play into it
0: i wish it did (laughs) actually i wish it did i wish more more boys were going into vocational training i mentioned richard reeves at the brookings institution because he's written the most recent book on the subject and he's he writes about this and he says why have we we've gotten rid of vocational training in the high schools we don't have." Uh, we we don't have um, what was it called shop. We don't shop, have shop anymore. Yes. <laughs> we we don't have auto mechanics. You know that used to be sometimes in in, in even in high school level. Um, and he writes about the need to bring back vocational training. You know we've had a tendency. You know, our education system has said everyone should go to college. Just
1: go to college. Yeah.
0: And everyone needs to go to college. And and you have to realize other. Cultures don't do that. Even Western cultures. Right. I, like I mentioned earlier, I lived in Europe for a while. I was in Germany, and a very small percentage of people go to college. Right. Only people who want a highly academic.
1: Yeah. And not training. a lot of boys are suited for college pursuits, right? I mean, some are, but.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I, I was trying to think of in my my college, my my class back in um, Germany. Uh, so I was there twice, and the second time I was in the. Uh, their junior college is included in the high school, so I right. was in junior college over there, and and it was roughly half and half boys and girls. But they have very rich vocational programs, so hmm. most students go off to vocational schools, boys and girls. And like girls, will go, girls will go into being a, a teller, you know, or an administrative assistant, or, you know, those kind of vocations. Um, and all the all of the uh, places of business uh, have apprenticeships. So the, uh, the vast majority of kids go off to apprenticeships where they learn on the job mm-hmm. and they get a good job, as you mentioned, often it's a very good job when they come out, but that's the majority. The majority go to vocational training. Only a small minority say, yeah, but I'm kind of an abstract thinker, I need to go to college.
1: <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> um, it, it's a very small minority. So I think we've got it backwards here. We, hmm. we think everyone should go to college, even though as you're, actually you're right. Um, personality tests show that ma- the majority of people are more concrete thinkers and it's a fa- fairly small minority who are abstract thinkers. And so, yeah, Richard Reeves and others, I, I, because he's at the Brookings Institution, I hope people listen to him. <laughs> you know, he's got some status there uh, because he's really arguing for more vocational training for, for boys. And it, it's a very, very realistic way of, of helping young men, I think.
1: I like so my my wife and I were blessed to have thirteen grandchildren now, and a number of them are boys. So one of our sons has five boys. The oldest is seventeen. They are looking in the face now. Of, Where is he going? What's he doing? And I'm really interested to see. I'm I'm seeking to maintain my correct place, stay out of their decisions and all that. You know, but um, I'm interested to see how they're how they're going to go. It's a different world from when I was a kid. You just went to college pretty much. Yeah.
0: Well, I have to tell you, um, since you asked about my personal life, um, <laughs> my oldest son is at Google, and he managed to finish one year of college. He's had one year of college. Huh. So even white-collar professions, mm. some of them are based on what you can do. Very much. On your, on your degrees. So I'll tell you how he got a job at Google. He did not apply. <laughs> um, he was contributing to open-source software. So he had gone to Virginia Tech. And he dropped out because even Virginia Tech was not challenging enough for him. Hmm. He, he didn't like it. He dropped out, and 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 so f- managed to finish up the first year at a community college. So he did get one year, but he was contributing to open source software. And Google, this is how they find people. Uh, they go they go and look at open source so open soft source software, and they say, Hey, this guy can code. Yeah, you know, hey, this let's guy get him. Can code. That's exactly it. So they call him and say, hey, you want to work for Google? Yeah, I've I've seen when
1: I've seen Elon Musk hiring for SpaceX and the ad says at the bottom college doesn't matter. They they want to know what can you do? What do you know? What's your talent? Are you energized? And so on.
0: Yes. And it's it's the same with music, for example. You know, what can you do? I play the violin. Um, Who cares about degrees? Come and play. Let's see how you can do. So there are a number of fields. Uh, and not just sort of, uh, you rem- remember the program Dirty Jobs?
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, that's fun. That was, What's that his name, so Mike Rowe? Yeah. In fact, <laughs> isn't he a believer? I think he's a brother in Christ.
0: I think so, yeah. I think so. right, yeah. right. But it was a fascinating program because it was saying, hey, you know, these are the kind of jobs, hands-on, tough, challenging jobs that men are especially, uh, uh, especially um suited for but That's there are right. some white collar jobs too that yes. you don't need a you don't need um a degree for it it's what you can do yes and hopefully more and more um, uh, um businesses industries will start to have tests where you can come take the test and show what you can do as opposed to get in there regardless
1: on a, of degree yeah
0: yeah, yeah. and my, my by the way my second son's a science editor and it was kind of the same thing. E- editing jobs, they always have a test for you. Here, Here's a piece of literature with all kinds of mistakes in it. Let's see what you can do to fix ah, it. Ah,
1: That's good. Proof that's is a- in the pudding.
0: Mm-hmm. That's all how right. you get an editing job.
1: <laughs> well, I'm going to move on to a little di- bit different question. This comes up in a section in your book, and your book says that the Darwinian theory of evolution, which is pretty much still everywhere – uh, normalized, normalized many traits in men that are today labeled toxic. Darwinian theory of evolution normalized them. Today they're considered toxic. H- how is that? How so?
0: Yeah, I'm I'm glad you asked. This is one of my favorite chapters um, because most of us think of evolution in terms of genes and fossils and so on, and we don't realize how much it shaped. The secular script for masculinity. Hmm. So in my book, I do go through several stages of how the secular script developed. You know, because I'm an apologist at heart, right? So I want to show mm-hmm. why the secular world gets its view of masculinity so wrong. Hmm. And this is one of the key turning points. Uh, Darwinian thinkers began to say that the men who came out on top in the struggle for survival would have to be the men who were. Oh. Ruthless, rugged, brutal, savage, barbarian, and even predatory. And so whereas Christianity had urged men to live up to the image of God in them, Darwinian thinkers began to urge men to live down to their animal nature, their presumed animal nature, to the beast within, as they often put it. Uh, and by the way darwin himself also did argue explicitly that women are intellectually inferior mm. uh, so he bears some responsibility for that as well mm. um, but and by the way herbert spencer we have to talk about him too because he was the main popularizer of darwinism here in america and he literally said uh, you know if men are so brutal and savage how do how do women get along with them and so he said well it would women had to learn the ability to please and it would also help if they learned to hide their resentment at Ooh. such bad treatment Ooh. <laughs> so sounds so like a wonderful a marriage <laughs> that was a message of evolution apparently men are brutal mm. beasts and women have to learn to hide their resentment at being treated so badly uh. <laughs> so and, and and here's the uh, important point is that that so that was called social darwinism and it has come back in our own day. It's under a new label. It's called evolutionary psychology. Um, but it's basically the same thing, which is, you know, let's take a cue from evolution. And I'll give you uh, two examples that I give in the book is um, a best selling book. So, you know, it had a lot of influence, a best selling book called The Moral Animal. And he said, the human male is a possessive, oppressive, flesh obsessed pig
1: giving
0: giving men a book on how to have a better marriage is like giving a viking a book on how not to pillage wow and i say wait a minute these men are promoting a more toxic more negative view of men than even the most radical feminists are Mm. (laughs) wait a minute and then another one is a book that has been it's an older book but it was just reissued by george gilder um and and he too uh says men are by nature violent sexually promiscuous irresponsible what are some of his other adjectives um he goes on and on about uh, unless uh, unless there's a woman to tame them so that's his ultimately he says women have to tame these men that's the woman's
1: job tame him tame the beast
0: yeah, to civilize them, mm-hmm. <laughs> to, to which my question is, if men really are so violent and brutal, as he says, what woman would have the power to tame them? Yeah. You know, men are stronger. And what woman would want to, <laughs> for that matter? But I think he's assuming that men have, that women have this power to tame, you know, the, the, this man who's brutal and violent. I'm sorry but he's not paying attention to the domestic violence statistics <laughs> men who are like that generally are not very tameable hmm. but anyway but the main point though is that this is the message still from uh, evolutionary thinkers even in our own day and i suggest like you like you said it normalizes traits and says well they're just in, this is just you know these aren't negative traits they're normative traits for men this is just the male character and I, and what i say in the book is they're letting men off the hook you know, they're saying, well, we're not even gonna try to hold you to a higher standard. We're not gonna even try to hold you to some standard of moral accountability. We're just gonna say, oh, well, you're naturally this way. George Gilder goes so far as to say, men have to follow the women's morality. To which I say, no, they need to follow God's morality. (laughs) What man is going to follow women's morality? You know, no red blooded man is going to want to do that. Well, that this sounds, sounds
1: like-, like early feminism, feminism back in the say 1800s and in the prohibition era a little bit later, where uh, it was the it was the job of the woman to tame the, the man. And some of those men, there was a lot of alcoholism and stuff. There were problems, but the, the woman's job was to tame, tame the beast and put up with him to a certain extent. And um, yeah, what what men would go along with that? Not many. That didn't go very good. That whole project didn't work
0: no and that's why we got uh, well the history there is that yeah in the 19th century um, for the first time in human history women were said to be morally and spiritually superior, superior to men yes and and that we need to stop for a moment on that because all the way back to the ancient greeks and romans people had thought that men were morally stronger morally superior they thought that the insight into right and wrong was a rational insight And that men were more rational and therefore men were more virtuous. In fact, the word virtue comes from the Latin word for man. V-I-R means man as in the word virile. So uh, the, the word virtue actually had overtones of masculine strength and honor. So it was a completely new thing when in the 19th century women were said to be morally superior and set up to be sort of the moral guardians of society. And, and and even that, why did that happen? Well, after the industrial revolution, there developed a very large public, public realm, right? Of business industry, financial institutions, universities, and the state. And people began to say that these large public institutions should be run by scientific principles by which they meant value free. Like like we hear today, right? Don't bring your private values into the public realm. Well, in that case, where would values be cultivated? In the private realm. And who would cultivate them? Well, women, because women were still in the private realm. So that's how that happened, is that in a sense, men were working in that secular realm. They were getting that secular education, and men were growing more secular. Um, and so that's why, in a sense, men were no longer being bound as much by a Christian ethic. They were not going to church as often. You see this in the literature at the time, by the way. People began to complain that men were growing more secular. Men were trying to straddle it in a sense with a sacred-secular split, right? So they would operate by secular principles at work and come home and try to be a Christian again, which didn't work. There's one writer in the 19th century who said men are sort of caught in a fatal dualism. That was her term, Hmm. fatal dualism. Uh, and of course it doesn't work, you know, as you train yourself in secular thinking, then that overcomes it. People began to complain that men were making an idol out of work, you know, before the industrial revolution, when men, you know, men work side by side with their wives and children on the family farm, the family industry, the family business. And so men's work was very much framed as caretaking. You know, you're doing this because you're responsible for your family. And then after the industrial revolution, when men, well, what it did is take work out of the home, right? Yes. The and men had to follow their work out of the home into factories and offices. And and actually, that's when you first start to see negative language describing the male character because mm. people began to protest that they were losing that caretaking ethos mm. of the colonial era, that they were becoming self-centered, egocentric, um, ambitious, um, greedy and acquisitive, look out for number one, win at all costs, this was the language of the day, and and, and of course, complaining also that they were using, losing their Christian ethic and making an idol out of work. So naturally, what happened is getting back to your question, m- women said, "Well, if we're supposed to be moral guardians of society, then it's our you know it's up to us to go out into the public square and start reform movements to overcome the, the alcoholism, you know, the, the prostitution, sex trafficking, um, gambling." <laughs> Mm -hmm. crime. All of these sort of traditionally male vices were increasing. Why? Because men were more secular. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And so there was a huge increase on sort of these, what we might call traditionally male vices. And then that explains why there was also a lot of reform movements. But the reform movements were mostly driven by women. And so that conflict between men and women was sort of set up at that time.
1: That had a lot to do, I believe, with churches becoming more feminized, too. It was more women who were leading things. But rather than jump into that, we are running out of time. I want to thank you for being here today. This has been wonderful. It's been marvelous. I want to show your book again. This is it, The Toxic War on Masculinity, subtitled How Christianity Reconciles the Sexes. A couple more things, quick. So one is, uh, just give us— a brief summary what's this book about why did you write it what problem were you trying to solve what did you hope to accomplish what's the book for
0: yeah the the final decision to write it was when i ran into the social science data showing that christian men do so much better than any other group in america hmm. i said we need to get that out to encourage christian men and that that was the final reason. I mean, I looked at other things. Um, I had written a little bit about the Industrial Revolution in my earlier book, Total Truth. But I applied it there mostly to how it affected women. And I thought, I'm not going to write about women, <laughs> again, um, because there are whole libraries of books on women's history because of the feminist movement. There's almost nothing on men. Hmm. I found really two good histories of, of men in America. And then there were some histories on related topics like history of fatherhood and so on but i thought wow this is a perspective that's not out there you know both the secular perspective from these history books but even more importantly the christian perspective is really not out there and so that that's the ultimate reason i wanted to write it was to encourage men who are who are living out their faith that um, th- that they're actually doing very well. And, ch- and and really, maybe two things. The church has to s- support them, but how does the church read out, reach out to those nominal men hmm. who are claiming the identity of evangelical, but who are actually doing worse than secular men? I think we really need to rethink how to disciple these men and help bring them in and help them to have a biblical understanding of headship and submission, because right now they're taking the language but infusing those words with secular meanings and then claiming to be christian so they're they're skewing the statistics
1: yes very much (laughs) So so
0: it does it does help show us what the church has to do to encourage one group and to disciple the other group better
1: very good thank you so um so i'm telling everybody listening you can get this book on amazon of course you can get almost any book on amazon i have mixed emotions about amazon i buy books from them all the time. And yet I kind of hate it. You know what I mean? Like I'd rather buy from a little local shop down the street, but they're all gone because there's the giant Amazon. But anyway, I didn't need to go into that, but I did. You can get this book on Amazon. But Nancy, there are probably other ways people can connect with you, a website or what? tell us about them, would you?
0: Yes. And, and by the way, if you hate Amazon, you can go to christianbook.com. <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> touche. Thank you.
0: Because yeah, I, 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 like you, you know, I, I'm always a little guilty of going into, into Amazon. But um, yeah, my publisher very generously uh, gave me a brand new website. So you should come over and look at it. It's colorful and fun. And you can browse my other books. You mentioned my earlier book, Total Truth. So you can browse that and you can, uh, you know, read the endorsements and, um, you can leave a comment. There's a place to leave a comment. So that would be fun. I don't get a chance to answer them all, but I do read them all. So come on over and say hi. Oh, I forgot to say the name. NancyPiercy.com. And Piercy is P-E-A-R-C-E-Y.
1: E-Y, yes.
0: Right. Nancypiercy.com, so yeah, come on over and say hi.
1: Well, thank you for coming on over and saying hi here on the Grounded podcast today. It's been a real pleasure. Hope to have you again someday. And uh, that's all for today. So thank you all, your listeners, your listeners for joining us today on Grounded. Grounded comes out twice a month on all the major platforms. You already know that because you're hearing this on one of them. So thank you for joining us. Hope to have you again.